This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 18, Episode 28. This is Writing Excuses. Conversational dialogue. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dong Wan. I'm Aaron. I'm Dan. And I'm Howard. And today we want to talk about dialogue, uh, how to do conversations between people. One of the things that will pull me out of a story faster than almost anything else are conversations, dialogue that don't sound like real people actually talk. And the problem is, if you actually do write down exactly how real people talk, it is often unreadable and also just as bad. So there's a weird middle ground that isn't really accurate, but feels accurate. And we are going to magically somehow tell you how to find it. <laughs> by, way of, by way of metaphor, in my audio engineering class, they explained, you know, they sat us in front of a pair of speakers and played music. And the right answer to what are you hearing is, oh, I'm hearing a pair of paper cones move back and forth powered by magnets. Well, the, as audio engineers, we were taught we're creating the illusion of these things by using other tools. As writers, you are using patterns of dots, whether it's ink on the page or pixels on the screen or whatever, to convey, convey to the human brain that a dialogue is taking place. It is a magic trick. And, and at some level, at some level, you got to lie. Well, it's funny. We're kind of performing a version of that magic trick right now. I mean, this podcast is intended to be very conversational, and it sounds conversational, but this is also not how the five of us sound when we're sitting around the dinner table and chatting. There's all this crosstalk, overtalk, interrupted thoughts, pauses. Those are things that we, as podcasters, are working to Wait, hang on. Is Dan allowed to have French fries? <laughs> No, yeah. <laughs> uh, but we're ignoring that for the moment. You know, I mean, that exactly that kind of interruption, yeah. right? Like in, you know, we, we do that a little bit here and there, but I think we're very deliberate about it. Unlike me at the dinner table, I'm a huge interrupter, as everyone here has realized. <laughs> you know, and I, I think those are kind of things to think about is how are you going to manufacture the illusion of a flowing conversation rather than replicating the absolute chaos <laughs> that is a real conversation between friends. When we were talking this morning and planning out exactly how we were going to do these episodes uh, over breakfast, um, we were talking about this episode specifically, and I suggested one angle on it, and Mary Robinette suggested something else. And then we had a brief exchange that was mostly, uh, like, and we knew because we've known each other for like 13 years, exactly what we meant. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that's how we decided the topic for this was like 13 bizarre syllables in a row that to us made perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. And that that's one of the, the challenges when you're, you're writing is that every line of dialogue is doing two jobs on the page. There's the authorial intention, the reason that you, the author, need that line to be there. And then there's the reason the character is saying that. And the reason the character is saying that is going to change depending on who the character is talking to. So it's like I could not have that multisyllabic partial 
utterance conversation that I had with Dan with the majority of the listeners because we don't have any of that shared context. Well, those actually, it wasn't polysyllabic, it was multi-gruntal. Multi-gruntal, <laughs> thank you. Our multi-gruntal modality is one that is very specific. So when I'm, when I'm trying to create dialogue for characters, I think about two areas of intention. What am I trying to accomplish on the page? Like, what, what scenic lift is this doing? And then the other is, why is the character saying this? What is my character's goal? What's their motivation? And, and again, that shifts for me depending on who they're talking to. So if I swap characters out in a scene, my dialogue has to shift as well. I think one of the interesting things about that is that sometimes your authorial intention can be to replicate, you know, conversation as best you can on the page. Sometimes it's more stylized. Any sort of dialogue can have a range from being almost, you know, completely fidelity to the way that we speak with ums and pauses where you're trying to show that this feels like real life to like very bantery where it's completely no one actually speaks like that. But there is a fun in it. I think about Dawson's Creek when it came out a zillion years ago and no one, no teenager talks the way that they do. But there was a fun in hearing teens Mm -hmm. use this like very complicated language that they wouldn't in real life. So sometimes your intention is also in showing something with the dialogue style in addition to the dialogue itself. Or I think about Deadwood a lot with this, where most of the characters spoke in a very vernacular way. And then you have Ian McShane playing uh, Al Swearingen, who talks in these elaborate Shakespearean, just foul mouth paragraphs where he'll just be talking and talking and talking. But it's one of the most delightful things to, to witness, and all the other characters seem to understand him, even though I, as the audience, I'm like, I barely figured out what he was trying to say there, but it was delightful. So, you know, you can use that to great effect to communicate things about character in ways that play with what is naturalistic, but how the other characters understand and respond to that, I think, can also be very powerful. I'm going to talk about one mechanic, to just to start us off, as an example of something that um, I see people doing on the page and was something that I would do is that you want the character to interrupt some another character. In real life, when we're speaking, that interruption comes several words after the word that causes the character to want to interrupt. Most of the time on the page, you do the interruption right at that word. And so if you want the dialogue to seem more natural, then you go ahead and you let the character carry a couple of words past that interrupting thing. And if you really want to put a punch underneath that word for some reason, then you would have them interrupt right at that time. So like, you know, if I were saying, uh, we're going to be going downstairs and someone interrupted me on the page and the downstairs was the thing that I wanted to to underline, it might be, we're going to go downstairs. Downstairs? How dare you say downstairs? (laughs) Whereas in real life, I might say, we're going to go downstairs to downstairs, and, and it doesn't play the same. So you can, mm-hmm. you can think about that, like, why are you doing that interruption and, mm-hmm. and how, are you, how are you playing with it? I like to think of conversational dialogue, conversational moments in books as a compression algorithm. And my favorite compression algorithm is the, the GIF or GIF, or we're not going to have that argument, where you you pick key colors and you say this color for this many pixels, this color for this many pixels. When I had a breakup conversation with a girlfriend in high school, we talked for like three hours. When you read a breakup conversation in a romance novel, when you see one in a rom-com, 
it is, it is not three hours. What got compressed? What were the key colors? And how many pixels did they run for until the reader knew that that was the color that they needed? I don't know what the right compression algorithm is for everything, but I know that it has to be compressed because real conversations take a lot longer mm-hmm. than they take in books. It's the way that no one says goodbye on the phone in a movie unless someone is about to die, right? Like Because otherwise, you don't need that note of we're concluding the conversation. All the information has been communicated. We're moving on from here. This is, I think, as a side note, one of the reasons that so many people in fandom have difficulty with dialogue is because they have, in real life, is because they have learned it from film, television, and books where Mm. all of the small talk has been stripped out. Yes. Intriguing. And also, so many things... So many things in in uh, romance and rom-com and drama, people will say such cruel things without any sort of warm-up or even any sort of justification because, wow, that's the punchy bit. And I'm, I'm sorry, people, d- don't learn to talk by what you see on TV because those people aren't being nice to each other. Well, it's also dialogue in fiction is designed to communicate the emotional state of a character, yes. right? You are very rawly and directly trying to get what the character is actually feeling across to the other character, but really to the audience so they understand what's happening in this conversation. When I am in conversation with somebody about how I'm feeling about something, it is rare that I am directly stating it, right? I, I'm talking about effects, I'm talking about consequences, I'm talking about all kinds of other things that are ways to get them to understand what my experience is coming out and saying it directly is actually not a very effective way to get them to understand what it is that you're experiencing. And thinking back to that idea of the compression algorithm, one of the things I like to do when thinking about dialogue is try to read more uncompressed uh, speaking. Anna DeVere Smith, the playwright, her style of Mm. doing plays is to actually go interview people and then turn it into a one-woman show. She does some compression because otherwise it would be endless, but her technique is trying to remain fairly faithful to the way that people talk. Like, and so listening to her do her shows, I'm like, well, that's pretty true to what a, a mildly compressed uh, speech is. Now, what do I want to look at? A Marvel movie might have like super compressed bantery stuff and then trying to figure out where do I want to fall in between. Repetition is a great example. When I listen to her work or other things that are more uncompressed, we, t- we repeat ourselves. When you broke up with your girlfriend for three hours, I'm going to guess you said the same thing 18 different ways. And that's some of the stuff that happens in real life. But on the page, it gets repetitive in a bad way because you're not in the same moment. And so you want to use, you can use repetition to make things feel more real because that's what happens. We forget where we were and then we come back to what we were talking about. Well, and this goes back into some of our previous conversations about uh, format and about different types of writing. Uh, There are things you can do, for example, in a script that don't work on the page because of all the extra ums and so things that we kind of add in that sound very naturalistic, but reading them become very onerous. Uh, Let's pause now and come back later. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. 
With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I did not know how much I needed Kunk on Earth until I watched the first episode of Kunk on Earth. This is a comedy documentary uh, faux documentary of human history uh, presented by Philomena Kunk, who is a character played by the actress whose name I've now forgotten. Diane Morgan. Diane Morgan. And Diane Morgan so brilliantly stays in the voice of Philomena Kunk. That's where... That's where half the comedy comes from, her uncertainty when interviewing people, um, her the, the self-consciousness, coupled with the absolute certainty that she's right. You know, oh, you know, my, my mate so-and-so, you know, shared this with me on YouTube. No, really, the moon is a lie. I'll send you, you just need to see the video. Um, I love Kunk on Earth, 30-minute episodes, which is the perfect length for this kind of comedy, uh, available right now on Netflix. Um, if you've ever wanted to learn lots and lots of things about human history, mostly correctly while laughing, Kunk on Earth. So as we come back in, I want to talk about a couple of tools to make your character voices distinct. Because when you've got two characters speaking to each other, in an ideal world, they sound like different people. Coming out of narr- narrating audiobooks, um, there, are, there are five things that make a character voice, roughly speaking, uh, three of which can be replicated on the page. I'll tell you the other two because it'll annoy you that you don't know them. They are pitch and placement. But the three that can replicate on the page are pacing, accent, and attitude. So pacing is something that you control with your punctuation. It is uh, someone speaking with very long, fluid sentences or somebody who's talking with like lots of parentheticals. I mean, uh, sometimes they talk with parentheticals, but, but sometimes they don't, like that kind of thing. Um, accent is about your sentence structure. It's not about uh, replicating someone's like phonetic distinctions on the page. It's that the, the sentence structure is going to vary based on where they're from. When I'm talking to my parents in Tennessee, I will, my, my pronunciation doesn't change that much, but I'll do things like, I'm going to go on over to the store. And I'm like, I don't know what all of those extra, pro, uh, pro, um, syllables. Yeah. Um, I don't Mono know. Gruntal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what all of those extra prepositions are actually doing on over to like, what, what, what are we doing there? But but that is rhythmically that's that's that that is 
built-in part of the accent. And then attitude is about your word choice. So the words that you pick when you're mad at someone are very different than the words that you pick when you aren't mad at them. And it's kind of an, an all of the above scenario too. Mm -hmm. Like if you take, what did you say? And you're mad at somebody. It's like the actual, did you say that changes? Yeah, I love that, like, the where people come from impacting the way that they speak. One of my favorite things um, is that there are many languages where at the end of sentences, you basically say, are you with me? Some sort of phrase like, yeah, got it. It's like different, different languages have different words that go at the very end, but it's basically like, are you still with me as I am speaking? And if you have someone who comes from a culture like that, or you've invented a culture like that, you might have more check-in words at the end of mm -hmm. sentences because mm -hmm. that's part of their way of speaking that will come through. And I think something that's really important and interesting to consider is that none of us just speak in a vacuum. You know, everyone, it's one of my sort of pet peeves is everyone has culture, including you. So as opposed to thinking of changes in language as something that just other people do, it's why do you speak the way that you do? And then think about for your characters, why do they speak the way that they do? And what are they conveying about themselves that they may not even realize through the way that they speak? Love that. Uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about in the course of this conversation that I actually don't have a great answer for, but, you know, so much of conversation is nonverbal. It's facial expression, it's gestures, it's eye contact, it's all of these things. You know, and I think one of the struggles that we've all had living our lives, mostly mediated by Zoom these past several years, is those tools got much more difficult to apply. And so when you're doing um, just verbal dialogue, so like in Dark One Forgotten, we're not getting character gestures, body language, eye placement, all of that. All we're getting is what are they actually saying? So what are some of the tips and tricks to communicate the things that would otherwise be communicated by like a tag that's like, he sighed, he shifted, he, you know, whatever that happens to be, he broke eye contact in some way. Like, So the thing is that we've actually been doing nonverbal dialogue, uh, uh, dialogue decoupled from body language mm -hmm. since the invention of the telephone. Um, so, so we know how to do that and we're familiar with those patterns. Uh, what I find is that when you're trying to replicate that on the page, you want to look for the natural pause points. Because anytime you put in body language, that's going to slow things down. So instead of saying, he paused, then you would say, he scratched his ear. Um, what I find is that, again, the body language is, as you say, part of the communication. So he looked away. It's like, well, what did he look at? What What is that actually con conveying? I'm very bad in my books. My characters do a lot of sighing. And I have to go back in and do a search and find your place to swap that out for other pieces of body language because it becomes inspecific. So if you want a really great example of how important all of these kind of nonverbal cues can be, uh, get on, jump on YouTube and go look up what I'm going to call the mother effer conversation from an early episode of The Wire. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is two characters who are doing what is essentially like a, um, it's a, crime, a crime scene investigation, yeah. trying to figure out how a woman died, where the bullet is, all these things. The only word that they say over the course of about five minutes is not one we can say on this show. Uh, but because of their uh, attitude, because of their vocal inflection, because of the way that they look at each other, you know exactly what they're saying 
and exactly what they mean. It is one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen. Uh, flip side of that, uh, another one of my very favorite shows uh, is Justified. One of the things I love about that is how distinct the dialogue is. And so, yes, of course, it's a show, and so they're doing some visual cues, but going back to what Mary Robinette was talking about, how do you make all of your characters sound different? Watch an episode of Justified and pay attention to, for example, the way that they threaten each other. Hmm. Uh, Win Duffy is kind of an outsider. He's not really a Southerner. He doesn't have that kind of slow, laconic way of talking that so many of them do. He's very clinical. At one point he says, if I see you again, I'm going to get a blowtorch and make you as small as I possibly can, uh, which is just very direct <laughs> and to the point. Uh, when uh, Raylan Givens, who's the main character, wants to threaten somebody, he says in this very slow way, He actually to win Duffy, he pulls a bullet out of his gun, drops it on his chest and says, next one's coming faster, which is such a beautiful way of encapsulating his uh, personality, the way he solves problems, uh, his, you know, absolute economy of words, but in a way that's completely different than Win Duffy's. One of the things about threats in particular is that they often say more about the character who is making the threat than the character who is receiving the threat. Because most of the time when people are making threats, they're actually signaling, this is something that I would find upsetting. They are not necessarily signaling, this is something that would be a problem for you. Thinking back to what you're saying about the difference between like when you're putting something on the page in dialogue and when it's spoken, I was thinking that sometimes it's, I think about the sentence, I don't know about that, mm. right? And so I'm thinking if I don't know about that and I am saying it in a conversation with people who can see me, I might sort of pause, think, and then say, I don't know about that. And on the page, you might say like, she furrowed her eyebrows or something much better than that. But in <laughs> in a dialogue, I might be like, I don't know about that. That's what I would do on the phone. Because what I'm doing is taking that space where you would see me do the furrowing and putting it in a vocal, like I'm doing mm-hmm. it vocally because you can't see me. That's what you do on the phone. And so something that's really interesting is to pay attention to the things we do when we're talking on the phone and figure out, is there a good place to put those in text? When do you lower your tone and whisper? When do you get louder? When do you extend vowels? And when do you get more clipped in the way that you speak, maybe because you're upset? And this circles back to what I what I think is kind of a 101 level, but we should all be reminded of it. Uh, writing and editing rule as it as it might be for dialogue which is that the rules for grammar and punctuation and spelling and whatever else for dialogue are much less rigid than for other things because we don't put commas where they necessarily are supposed to go when we're speaking um play with that uh there have been a lot of times when i've had to stet something from a copy editor because because my grammar has been egregious and I have to go back in and say, uh, no, that was meant to be egregious because of the way this is supposed to read. But but in checking what the copy editor has written, I'm like, let me make sure that reads correctly. You know, it, it, I didn't accidentally spell a bad word, did I? No. Okay, we're cool. One other thing I want to point out is that what feels like naturalistic dialogue also follows trends and evolves over time. What was naturalistic in the 1950s was the screwball comedy, which was incredibly fast-paced, had a very specific accent and cadence, 
Then we entered the 70s, where it was this very, like, naturalistic, like, you know, this is how people really talk. And, you know, as audio changes, as technology changes, as our expectations change, you know, right now we're in the, the era of mumblecore movies, where it's almost impossible to tell what anybody's saying because of the way the sound is mixed and the way dialogue is written right now. You know, in you find that in prose, too, in text, how people talk in different eras, in different genres, what feels like natural language, natural conversation will shift depending on what you're trying to inflect. So I think what really we're circling around in so many ways is conversational dialogue, natural dialogue, is highly stylized. And it is approached to great effect to reveal character, to reveal tone, to reveal genre and category in all these really powerful ways. I think I love that. And I love that I think it's both what you're trying to inflect and also what you're trying to reflect. Because not all folks talk the same. And so I think one thing that's really exciting is to is to not feel like you need to force yourself into the way that the dialogue that you're used to reading or used to seeing is if that's not the story that you're trying to tell. I really love the way that like an author like Susan Palumbo, who's a short story writer, uses dialogue in a different way. She's from the Caribbean. And like there's a different style of writing that she's doing that is amazing and completely natural but just natural to a different storytelling uh, ethos than the one that we're used to Mm -hmm. specifically within the United States. So I want to give you some homework uh, this week. What I want you to do is a very simple exercise. I want you to take dialogue that you've already written and delete every third line. And this is going to give these gaps in the conversation that you are going to have to then bridge with the body language that you use and having the other character make the deductive jump that we would make in natural conversation. It's not going to be a perfect thing that you need to do with every thing that you write, but it's an exercise in making deliberate choices for what you're doing in your dialogue. Try deleting every third line of dialogue. In our next episode of Writing Excuses, we discuss the different sounds of collaboration and learn about two of our hosts' experiences building worlds with Brandon Sanderson. Until then, you're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, Dan Wells, and Howard Taylor. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and produced by Emma Reynolds. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.